All right, good morning, everybody. I was also reminded to uh, let those of you who are maybe calendar deficient know, and you are in a loving relationship with another person, that Tuesday is Valentine's Day. <laughs> so this is your last warning. I used to love Valentine's Day. When I was a newly married, I loved Valentine's Day. I always considered myself, oh, I'm kind of a romantic person. Yeah, Valentine's Day, that's my jam. And now, no, I do not like Valentine's Day. I love love, and I... I love my wife, but Valentine's Day now to me just seems like um, a lot of risk with little reward. Um, there's a lot of potential to, to screw it up. Some of you know what I mean. If you love Valentine's Day, fantastic. Just roll with it, run with it, own it, and, and teach us the, the rest of us how to do it. It's just uh, a scary opportunity to mess up. Amen. One friend of mine said, my goal now for Valentine's Day is just not to make her mad. Uh, like, I've given up trying not to disappoint her. She's going to be disappointed, but now I just try not to make her mad. But may that not be you. Amen. Praise the Lord. Wasn't that an uplifting beginning to our sermon today? <laughs> Praise the Lord. Well, there is good news. We have arrived to the conclusion of our journey with the Israelites through the wilderness. At least the first year of their, their journey, uh, they still have 40 years to go in the wilderness uh, before they get to the promised land. But this is where today is where uh, we unhitch our wagons from their caravan, and we're going to head off in some new directions after this week. There's lots more we could say about the life of Moses and things that happened after, the, after they leave Mount Sinai. Uh, but we're gonna, there's a reason why we're, we're uh, f- concluding with this passage today that we're going to be looking at. Number one reason is because uh, I have next week off. So this, this <laughs> feel like a good time to uh, finish this up. And uh, we're going to come back with a new series after next week uh, as we enter into the season of Lent, uh, leading us all the way to Easter. And so that's going to be a beautiful time. But we'll be coming back to Moses. We'll be coming back to the Israelites many more times in the future. Don't you worry. And uh, there's another reason that this is a good place to take uh, a little break here is because today brings us to the end of the book of Exodus. It brings us to the end of Exodus. The next part of the journey of the Israelites through the wilderness, uh, as they leave Mount Sinai, they head there and then they spend 39 or so four more years in the wilderness. It really picks up in the book of Numbers. And so this is a good place for us to transition today. And the passage that we've chosen uh, to wrap up our series is a scene that happens just after last week's scene, uh, after the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's one that the New Testament picks up on, and uh, to contrast, and it helps really, it does an amazing job of contrasting more of the difference between the Old and the New Covenants. We've really been digging this, digging at this uh, throughout this series, the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and today is going to really cement that, just firmly reveal that Jesus is truly the ultimate chosen one, right? It really isn't Moses, it wasn't the chosen one, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who frees us not only from Egypt, but he frees all of us. He doesn't just free the Israelites, he frees the whole world, not just from our Egypt, but out of, he frees all of humanity out of their, our slavery to our sin and our selfishness and uh, leads us to this face-to-face relationship with God that was just not possible in the Old Testament. He leads us through the wilderness. He leads us to our promised land, which for us is the kingdom of heaven, which is present here on the earth, right? Our promised land isn't really just heaven after we die. It's the kingdom of heaven, which happens right now. We can experience right now that, that freedom and that deliverance right now. And 
We are still on the journey. We're still on the journey. And so Jesus is the one who we're really going to be focused on today as we, we conclude our, our series, Between the Waters. Quick review of what happened last week that's going to kind of lead us into this next portion here. When the Ten Commandments were given, they were given, remember, with thunder and lightning. Um, the people were really scared. Uh, in fact, God tried to speak, right? That, that really kind of weird scene where he, he tries to speak straight into the hearts of the people, and it sounds like trumpets and wind. He tries to speak his law right into their hearts of every Israelite directly, and the people say, no, no, that's too scary. And they say, Moses, you got to speak to God for us. We don't want God to speak to us directly. And then we saw how the New Testament reflects back on this in Hebrews chapter 12. Just to remind you, chapter 12, verse 18, it says, you, now this is talking to Christians, so this is, you're the you here, you have not come to a, a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. That's how the Mosaic covenant was revealed, right, in these sort of scary sort of ways, to a trumpet blast or to a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken. That's not the kind of covenant that we're invited to. Even the way the covenant is given now is different, right? It's not through fire and earthquake. Now it's through the birth of a cooing little baby, right? That is this new covenant that we get to receive. He says, uh, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, sorry, Mount Sinai is the mountain of fear and thunder. This is Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to the thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. From the mountain of fear, now we're at the mountain of joy. So there's this entire spiritual dynamic of, of pure joy surrounding us when we come to Christ. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. This is a beautiful phrase, the church of the firstborn. This is this means you're all heirs. Praise God. Amen. In, in the old covenant here, you know, the firstborn is the one who get it, gets it all. If you're the secondborn or the thirdborn, you know, you're like a stepkid. You don't get nothing. No, no, no. In the kingdom of God, you're all firstborn. The church of the firstborn, you're all heirs of the promise. You all get the birthright. You all get the best part of the inheritance. He says, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Now, that's interesting. So, Jesus, so there is a mediator. He's Jesus. But see, Jesus now, he's not just another human being that's standing between us and God mediating. He is God. So, our mediator is God himself, right? This, this perfect fusion of human and divine, that God reconciling his people to him. We're brought together in Christ. And so, this, this is a beautiful, beautiful covenant, better by far than the old covenant, better by far than the old covenant. So, if you have your Bibles today, go ahead and turn into the New Testament over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be there in just a minute. You can go ahead and get there, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And while you're heading there, I want to give you a quick summary of what happens uh, after Moses brings the Ten Commandments back down the mountain. Remember, he had to do it twice. He came down twice. So these are Ten Commandments 2.0. The first time he comes down the mountain, he sees the children of Israel have gotten tired of waiting for him. They're worshiping this golden calf, this idol. He gets so mad, he smashes. He's got some anger issues. He smashes the tablets down. He has to go back up the mountain. God rewrites the commandments on a second set of stone tablets. By the way, there's an interesting thing I want to take a second look at. While Moses is up the mountain this time, spending time with God, a really fascinating thing happens. Moses 
asks to see God's glory, and God allows Moses to see his back, but not his face. This is a beautiful thing. God, Moses wants to see God's glory. He, Moses wants to lean in, right? Israel's scared of God. They're like, no, 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 we don't want to talk to God. You talk to God for us. But Moses, you got to hand it to him. He wants to lean in. We've talked a little bit more about uh, this meaning, but just, to, just for today, I want to say this. When Moses asks for, for this, to see his glory, God tells Moses to go stand on a rock because he's going to pass by, because he says he's going to cover Moses with his hand until he's passed by, because Moses like can't handle to see his face is what it sounds like. And what's fascinating is the ancient rabbis had all sorts of things to say about this passage, but one of the things they pick up on is this part about God's back. And what they argue is that in the original Hebrew language, the word back here, it's not just a part of God's body. It's not just this literal, like God's, you know, his shoulder blades going by. Because remember, God's, he's a spirit. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have like an elbow. So when it says his back, there's something going on here. And they argue that God's back here should be understood as a euphemism for where I just was. Isn't that an interesting thing? Moses says, I'm going to cover your face and I'm going to pass away. And when your eyes are opened, what you'll get to see is the place I just was. It's like he's saying, that's the closest you're going to get, Moses. Not, not this face-to-face intimacy in the moment, in the now, but you'll recognize where I have been. You know, like a reminder that, you know, as soon as you think you've got me all figured out, that you got me fit neatly into your, your little box, I have already moved on. But here's what else is interesting here. In passages that talk about Moses going into the tent of meeting uh, to meet with God, in, uh, in chapter 33, 11, for instance, it says that they used to talk face to face. So that's interesting. Here it says they talked to, to, he would talk to God face to face, but this is obviously like a colloquialism, some kind of figure of speech. The most intimate relationship with Yahweh recorded in the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, is Moses, who would talk to God face to face, and ultimately we find out he's only seeing the back of God. He's not actually seeing God's face at all. And, and, and in the Gospel of John confirms this. He says that no one's ever yet seen God until Jesus came. No one has seen God truly face to face until Jesus. So this is just a beautiful reminder to us that Jesus is going to show us more than even Moses experienced. We have a better covenant. We have a better covenant. We get to see more than even Moses experienced. So, so Moses comes down the mountain the second time. This time, the people are behaving themselves. They're, they're waiting patiently when he arrives. And this time, when they see him, it says something else. It says that his face is shining. Moses' face is shining. And this is what the Apostle Paul uh, is going to pick up on in 2 Corinthians 3 that we're going to look at in a few minutes, that his face is shining with this sort of residual glory of God. It says that the people are scared of Moses' new shine. <laughs> I think I, I probably would be too. I'd be like, uh, Moses, your face is shining. Great. What, what's, you might need some ointment. And by the way, the shine seems to be pretty intense. Uh, one of the Hebrew words for the shine is the shafts of light actually coming out. Shafts of light. So this is more than just, oh, Moses, you, you know, you got a tan. You look good. Uh, but it's actually like, dude, you've got laser beams coming out of your face. 
And one of the words in the Hebrew used to describe the light, uh, that the shine is the Hebrew word for horns. And so that he's got horns coming out. In fact, there's a whole period of medieval art. Maybe you've seen it uh, where it's based on a misunderstanding of the Hebrew word that actually depicts Moses with horns. Michelangelo sculpted a famous uh, statue of Moses, and it has it with horns. You know, you'd see that statue if you go to Italy or something. You see that, and you'd be like, you think like, is that like Pan? You know, the god Pan, or is that like the devil or something? No, it's Moses with his horns. Um, so maybe you've seen that before. That's where it comes from. The shafts of light uh, they get misunderstood in the translation. There, the dude's got a big shine going on here, and so. It's interesting what Moses does about it. In verse 32, it says that he wears a veil when he's around the people. And he removes it when he's one-on-one with God. And when he goes back down, you know, when he goes to the tent of meeting, he takes off the veil. He has that intimacy with the Almighty. But when he comes back to the people, it says it's overwhelming. So he puts on the veil in order to help them out. Now, now we're getting to the good stuff here, okay? You ready here? Let's see. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, he says this captures a picture of the old covenant. Now, how does Paul connect these dots? Let, let's pick it up in verse 7 and see how he does this. 2 Corinthians 3. Now, Paul says, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, that's a pretty harsh indictment of the old covenant there, brought death, came, if that minister came with glory, so this is the Ten Commandments, right, which was engraved on stone, that it literally, he's saying it literally brought death. It, it, it didn't bring the Spirit to give you the power to have intimacy with the, with the God of life. You know, it just told you, look, for the record, here's how you would need to live if you're going to be good enough for God. Here's how you would need to live. And it ends up, he says, just becoming deadly to us because they can't do it. All right? The Israelites can't fulfill all the, all the commandments. There's 630-something-odd commandments. But it, came, but it came with his glory, he says, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was. That means temporary. It wasn't forever. It's was just a temporary glory. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So he's using this argument here that the Old Testament, it was glorious. You know, we admit that. But how much more glorious then will the new covenant be? It says in verse 9, If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Again, contrasting this old and the new, old and the new. And that word righteousness there, that's just a fancy religious word that, that means being in a right relationship with God. Being in right relationship. How, how much do you and I crave to be in a right relationship with God? There's a lot of people who walk around their whole life with, when they think about God, as far as the way they would describe their relationship with God, it, it'd be like in terms of shame, never measuring up. Here he's saying we can have the righteousness, which is a right relationship with God. It's a beautiful thing. The old covenant said, here's the standard. New covenant actually changes our heart to make us right with God. For what was glorious, what was glorious, has no glory now. Uh, Paul uses a kind of oxymoronic structure here in the Greek. It it literally is, what has glory has no glory. (laughs) What has glory has no glory. And, And he says, in comparison with the surpassing glory, that's the new covenant, 
And if what was transitory, again, or what was fading or temporary, came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? You can tell he, Paul's kind of on a glory trip here, right? There's a lot of glory language here. The glory, this is like, for them, it's this full-on majesty, the, the essence of the Almighty. You get to see a bit of it in the old, but wow, he's saying it's going to come full-on in the new. And, and this, and but we get a whole different experience of the glory. See, the old, what is it? It's a shining face. It's this thundering mountain, a lot of bells and whistles. The new is a changed heart, a changed heart. It, it's actually starting to see yourself become more like Jesus. And he says this is an even greater glory than the whole special effects show that happened at Sinai. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Oh, guys, we get to walk right into the presence of God. We experienced him this morning, right? His presence. We get to walk right in there, uh, and, and, and we get to sing, and we get to pray and rejoice while we do it, and we're not afraid. You didn't come to church today going, man, I hope everything, I hope I have all my ducks in a row so I don't die when I walk through those doors. Hopefully you didn't. We'll, we'll pray with you after church if you did, but no, we don't have to do that, right? We're not worried that God's going to smite us if we peek behind the curtain, or if we're not fully perfect when we, when we go and we touch Him, right? Or if we use the wrong incantation, we're not worried. Now we have this bold confidence in our relationship. We are not like Moses, he said, who would put a veil over his face to prevent… Ooh, ooh, watch this. This is really interesting. Who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from, watch what he says, seeing the end of what was passing away. Hmm. Now, Paul's planting a little thought here that's not in the Old Testament. It's not in Scripture. The text doesn't say this. Paul is insinuating, was it not possible that Moses not only wore the veil over his head to protect the people from the glory, is it possible that the glory had started to fade? And the veil was there to protect the people from saying, what's wrong, Moses? Is God's blessing leaving you? Are we all, right? Are we all not blessed? And so Moses puts on the veil over his face, not only to protect them from the glory, but to protect them from seeing that actually the glory was starting to fade. Oh man, I could preach about that for an hour. This is an allegory of the law itself that eventually passing away. The whole nature of religion today, guys, is basically summed up in that, trying to keep up appearances of a glory that is no longer there, right? But we still keep it on there. <laughs> okay, verse 14, we'll keep moving. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. The same veil, hmm. it's not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Man, Paul, he's, he's bringing down the house here. He, this is quite, quite a lot he's saying about the old covenant here. He's delivering this brilliant picture of life apart from Christ. Now, here's another reason why the veil represents 
all that is, is broken and twisted and false in religion today. A veil that's covering your face, your head, so that nobody can see you, is also going to make it difficult for you to see other people as they really are. So Paul says the whole old covenant is summed up in this picture of a limited, in one place he says, obsolete glory. And, and when you put all your eggs in that basket, and when you, don't, you end up not seeing others very well. You don't see God very well, not when the veil is on. You don't see the world very well. And you're trying to pretend you're something you're not. Hmm? And meanwhile, you can't see others as they really are. And everyone is just keeping up this religious farce, basically. Everybody walking around with their veils on. Aren't we spiritual? Aren't we holy? Mm, yeah, I'm holy. Are you? Everything's good? Good. Okay, I'm good. Lots of veils. And he says this is a picture of people today who still cling to the old covenant, that transactional kind of covenant, or try to put one foot in the old, one, one in the new. Anyone who has not turned to Christ from any background, if, if they haven't turned to Christ yet, it's like they're still wearing a veil. They don't have that face-to-face -face intimacy with God, nor with people. And then verse 16 Here's the good news. Here's the hope. Praise the Lord. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Whoosh. The veil's taken away. Praise God. That's good news. When you turn to Jesus, He lifts the veil. Doesn't this, what does this remind you of? Does this sound like wedding language? It does to me. It's like Jesus turns to me and He lifts the veil. And it's like Jesus is about to give me a big old kiss. Hallelujah. He takes the veil, and we, we have that face-to-face -face intimacy with God when you turn to Jesus. And look, it doesn't mean you're never going to have questions. Never mean, doesn't, doesn't mean there's not going to be any more mysteries, or you're going to have doubts occasionally. What it does mean is you now have that intimacy that only Jesus can provide. Only Jesus can provide this. By the way, is there, there is one other place in Scripture that we see this theme of a veil being removed because of Christ. Anybody remember it? Yes, sir? The, the temple at the crucifixion, right? The moment of his death on the cross, the actual physical veil in the temple this veil, like, I mean, on a huge scale, this thing they said was two stories high, up to 30 feet long, might have weighed over a ton. This velvet curtain, basically, right? That's keeping all the common people from the Holy of Holies. This, the cross, signaled the moment when that separation was finished. It said it was ripped in two, once and for all. Now, the Lord what does he say? Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We sang that this morning. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. Freedom from the law. Freedom from the rules of this systematic formulations instead of faith, instead of a relationship, right? From, from the transactional, do this or I'll do this, or you do this or I'll do, you know, or if you do this, then I'll do this. No, no, freedom from that. A new covenant, a better covenant. We have a new covenant. We have freedom 
from that whole old thing. Now, by the way, as I'm reading this, it occurred to me, this is a risky message for Paul to preach. Who's, who's he talking to here? What church? The Corinthians, right? Yeah, the Corinthians. What are the Corinthians, some of you might remember, what are they infamous for? They're infamous, yeah, for, for taking this law, uh, for taking this gospel of, of freedom and grace and abusing it to a license to sin. Paul has to fuss at him for that sometimes, right? And this right here would be a perfect opportunity for Paul to say, oh, wait a minute, who are we writing? The Corinthians? Actually, no. No, no, no. You guys, uh, y'all weirdos are a special case, and you need some rules. You do need the rules. You should actually not just preach grace and freedom, but also keep one foot in the law, because it'll help keep you moral, right? It'll, it'll help you behave. It'll help you be ethical, because y'all are dingbats. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He never backs down from the beauty of the gospel. Even here, where he's got a perfect opportunity to sort of hedge his bets a little bit with these guys, he never backs down, and we shouldn't either, right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Amen? What does he say in verse 18? And we all who with unveiled faces, unveiled, no veils, no veils needed or allowed, right? The next word has, has different translations in different Bibles. Let me read, this is the NIV. He says, we with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. I love that picture. Unveiled faces with face-to-face -face intimacy with God, guys. As we contemplate the Lord's glory, it says we are being transformed into his image. Get this picture. That's what our glory experience looks like here. It's being changed into the image of Jesus. That's where we're headed with this. With, what does he say? With ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, he says, stare at Jesus. We're staring at Jesus. The veil is removed when you come to Christ. We turn to him. He lifts the veil. There's nothing, there's no secrets anymore. He knows us fully. This word for contemplate is a really interesting one, to contemplate the Lord. You might, if you're reading your Bible right now, some of you might uh, be use, see a different word. Uh, some of the translators say we behold the Lord's glory as in a mirror. Um, but the context you're seeing here is we're staring into a mirror. You're staring into a mirror, but you're not just seeing yourself. You're seeing the Lord's glory, right? It's this kind of intense staring while reflecting on Jesus. But notice it's a life of, of contemplation that leads to gradual transformation. A life of contemplation looking, staring at Jesus, thinking of Jesus, looking at him, absorbing Jesus. And it leads, it's not just like us walking around thinking big thoughts with a little Bible in front of us. It leads to transformation. So I can look into this mirror and I see a version, a, a version of me. And part of that may be true. You might be, he, he, might, he may be saying that you should, if you have been made righteous in the new covenant, if you have the Holy Spirit inside you, if you're being conformed in the image of Christ, you're going to start seeing the glory of God reflected back at you. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. But it's more than that, because he's saying, when I stare at Jesus, 
Because it seems to be Jesus who he's really talking about staring at. It's not the point is that we stare at ourselves. I'm staring at Jesus. He says that I'm going to see God's glory. And so we contemplate or meditate on. That might be one of the translations that says, or ruminate or rehearse. We go over it again and again. It's this life of contemplation that leads to transformation. What does Jesus look like? What does Jesus act like? And we run everything through this filter. What does Jesus do? What is Jesus like with people? What is he like with children? What is he like with adults? How does Jesus, what is he like with the religious system? Everything we encounter, we, we say, where is Jesus in that? This is what we talked about several weeks ago, right? It's the idea of reading the Bible and recognizing the windows from the mirrors, right? Even in the Old Testament, we can read the Old Testament, but we recognize these windows. We see right through it. We see Jesus. We see Jesus shining through there. This is what God is like. We, we get to, we, we don't just read things, we, even the Gospels, we don't read them and just say, oh, what an interesting figure of history Jesus was, interesting story, we get to read and we say, ah, this is what God is like. Do we understand that? That this is what God is like. When we look at Jesus, this is what God is like. This is the glory of God. What I see in Jesus, it's more glorious than any sound and light show that Moses and the children of Israel experienced. And it reminds me that Jesus shows me God. Jesus shows me God. Jesus shows us a God in a way we can't find anywhere else. Jesus shows you a God that you cannot find in other religions, that you can't find in philosophy, you can't find in politics. You can't find by searching deep inside yourself for the power within. He shows you God that you can't find in pleasure or in creation or in science. If we don't look at Jesus, the scriptures tell us that we're still veiled. We're, we're walking in the dark. We're still hiding from the truth. And, and this leads us to our goal that we're really after this morning. The goal is removing the veil. We want to remove the veil. I'm going to ask you a really stupid question right now. Does the idea of God ever seem foggy or distant? <laughs> Most of you would say, duh. Yeah, right? The more you think about God, do you ever, like, your brain start to hurt? <laughs> like, my brain physically starts to hurt? Because he's like, he's God, and I am not. And the more I clue into that, I go, oh, oh, there's, there's more there than I can possibly wrap my mind around, right? The old saying, clear as mud, sometimes applies to that. Are you trying to reach up to God directly without the Jesus component? Are you ever just like, it's just too much, right? God is just too weird and too nebulous. He's too unknowable. Or, or maybe the Bible, when it comes to the, reading the scriptures, is the Bible ever more mud than clear water when you read it? You might be like, man, I tried reading this passage here and I read this passage here and I, I try to make sense of it all. I don't know. I don't know what, what's going to bring clarity to all this. It's easy to get the idea, and some Christians get the idea, that I can achieve ultimate knowledge 
and power and understanding if I just keep staring at my Bible long enough. If I just keep staring at this Bible long enough, I, maybe I take enough Greek and Hebrew classes. That'll help me. Really learn how to exegete the scriptures just perfectly. Maybe I'll just confess this passage over and over and over. Maybe I'll learn them by heart. If I confess these things enough, that'll bring me to ultimate clarity. Well, I just want to set your mind at ease. This same Bible tells us your veil will be removed when you turn to Jesus. When you turn to stare at Jesus, that veil gets removed. When you turn to Jesus, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, you guys obsess over the scriptures because you think they're going to bring you life. The one they're speaking of is standing right in front of you. <laughs> they're sitting here like this when Jesus is right here, right? It's like they're treating their Bibles like a wall instead of a window, right? Jesus is right there, right? And yes, we learn about Jesus from the scriptures, obviously. That's where, that's where we have our record of Jesus is in the scriptures. But, but this Bible is a window to help us that allows us to discover Jesus, right? So don't worship the window. Worship the one the window reveals. Worship the one he reveals. That's where the glory comes from. So the question for us is, are you ready to actually turn to Jesus? Are you ready to turn to him and have him lift the veil? In whatever areas of life, that veil just seems to persist. You know there's a battle for your soul going on right now? Did you know that? And just, just because maybe you get saved, that battle doesn't end. There's still an enemy out there that wants to destroy you, wants to kill you, wants to keep you in bondage, wants to keep lying to you, right? That battle is basically keep the veil on or turn to Jesus. Just a few verses later, from this whole brilliant revelation that we read from Paul. And I understand, it's kind of deep stuff. This is Paul that is really most philosophical. You've got to really read it slowly. But he says this in 2 Corinthians 4. Look what he says. And even if our gospel is veiled, is veiled to those who are perishing, and the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Now, who's blinding the minds? Is it Jesus? Is it Yahweh? Is he trying to confuse people? No, 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 it's the God of this age. And that God of this age could be Satan. It could just be the ruling forces of our world. It could be our culture, this culture of just lies that we live in. It could be whatever is distracting us. The God of this age is blinding the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ is the image of God. So this battle is ongoing. But he says that you and I, can turn to Christ and experience a clarity that you may be suspicious you could ever achieve. Clarity is possible, guys. Turning to Christ, it clears a lot of stuff up. As I said before, it doesn't mean you're not going to have questions. In fact, I believe if you're reading and you're studying and you're staring at Christ and you're contemplating and you're doing that reflecting on with clear eyes, uh, and no fear, you're actually going to get questions. You're, it's probably going to generate more questions than you started with. That's a beautiful thing, right? But you can have the clarity about the very centerpiece of the universe, the, the, the essence of God. I look at Jesus. I look at Jesus. Christ crucified. Christ risen. 
And I say, oh, that's God. That's my anchor right there. Whatever else, there might be other questions that come. And I might read this and that and hear this and that and experience this and that in life. And that brings in a whole lot of questions. But I put my anchor on that. That is God, Jesus Christ crucified and risen. I filter everything through that clarity right there. So brothers and sisters, we, we have access to a clearer picture of God than the Israelites could have ever dreamed of. He was very confusing to them. But are you beginning to see how we get to know God in a way that even Moses himself was not allowed to experience? Moses only got to see his back. He only got to see where he just was. We get to experience God's presence right now within us in the form of the Holy Spirit. Moses didn't have God living inside of him. You do. When you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit inhabits you. You are the temple. You become the temple. There is no holy place that you can't touch. It's you. You get to be the, the, that thing in the universe that walks around and inhabits the Lord. That's an intimacy the Old Testament prophets w- wouldn't dare imagine that. They would think that was heresy. Not only that, not only that, one last thing. We get to experience Christ in a beautiful way, and in in his glory in another beautiful way, and that is in each other. Scripture tells us very plainly, we experience the Lord in the form of the body of Christ, that is the church. So the next time, you know, you're just thinking, man, I, just, I wish I, I, I'm jealous of Moses and those guys. I wish I could experience God in the flesh, you know, those guys. No, 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 just look around you. Turn your head from side to side right now and look beside you at the people. You are surrounded by people who are filled with the Spirit of Christ. Christ is here, and he's enjoying this intimacy with us. And and we get to look around, and when I look around and I see the diversity in this church, of all the ages and stages and faces, I am privileged to be in the presence of other people who together are in the presence of the Spirit of God. This is his glory, unveiled, unhidden, and it's better than all the thunder and lightning. Amen? As we close in prayer, I'm going to ask that God really show himself uh, to us, to you, all week long in, in just fresh and powerful ways. May his glory, his fullness, be here in this church and in your family, in your personal life, and throughout our community. Amen. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, God Almighty, Abba Father, Daddy God, we invite the fullness of your glory in righteousness, in love, in servanthood, and in sonship. Through the power of the Spirit, Lord God, we invite all of you to be manifest among all of us today. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just be grateful for Jesus, but but how Jesus shows us you, O God. We welcome you. We turn to you. We thirst for you. We thank you, Lord God, for lifting the veil so that we can see your heart through Jesus. Make us fearless. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen, hallelujah. Well, will you stand to your feet with me today as our prayer partners are coming forward?
if you're here today and you sense that thirst inside of you for a clarity you've never experienced before, for an intimacy with the God of the universe that you, maybe you've never felt before, I invite you to come forward and let these wonderful people pray with you in faith. They can lead you in that next step. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever it is you need, I invite you to come forward and pray. We believe in the prayer of faith, right? The prayer of faith changes things. But number one, the first thing it changes is you. It changes you. It opens your eyes. So I encourage you, come forward. Let these beautiful people pray with you. Amen. Friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May you experience his mercy this week. Grace and peace be with you. Hallelujah. Go out there and reveal God's glory to our community. Amen. Bye-bye.